0: I guarantee you, your accountant, your bookkeeper, your whoever does not care about the profitability and your cash management of your business as much as you do. And they probably care about it less than you may even think.
1: Welcome to the seven figure flipping podcast, where we take you behind the scenes of wholesaling and house flipping businesses. The systems and automation that we discuss will help you build a real business instead of another job for yourself. From beginners to those doing hundreds of thousands a year, we go deep into the details and strategies that are working today. And now your host, Bill Allen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 7 Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen. And today, we're going to be continuing our series on the successful habits and the habits that lead to success, whether it be in your personal life, in your financial life, in your business, all of those things. So, we've been talking about... We've been talking about building out your to-do lists, how to get through the day, how to be productive, so productivity. And we've also talked about success habits of a lot of our people in our group, our 12-week year program, the accountability and things. And today, we're going to shift over to some of the financial habits of success and how you can become financially free through habits with your finances and your personal life and your business, uh, obviously. So, today I've got another one of the members of seven figure flipping and our seven figure altitude group. And it was somebody who's won a seven figure club award this year. Uh, Mr. Tanner Larson. What's up, Tanner?
0: Uh, good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate, uh, appreciate having me on this. Is, I'm excited.
1: Yeah, me too. Is this, that's your excited face. That's my excited (laughs) face. It's as big as a smile goes. (laughs) Awesome. So Becca gave us a bunch, gave me a bunch of instructions. She's like, you guys got to liven it up. You and Tanner are going to be talking about finances. We're going to be so bored over here. You've really got to get the energy level up and get people excited about money. So I don't know anything. What's that? So that's because Becca knows
0: me too. And so she's like, yeah, you're you're not going to be very exciting to talk to or listen.
1: Yeah, but we are going to be exciting because we're going to be talking about something that excites everybody typically, and it's money. We're going to be talking about finances and become financially free. So recently we did this, I kind of told my seven figure flipping origin story and so did Tyler and so some of the other members. So if real quick, if you can just kind of tell your seven figure flipping story, I think that would help a lot of people give some context to who you are. And I know you've been a member of the group for uh, quite a few years now, actually, you're one of the early members of the group. So obviously there's something that is uh, that you're coming back for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, so yeah, I joined the group uh, a little over three years ago, maybe three and a half years, something like that. Um, my background is actually in accounting. So I went to, uh, I graduated from ASU, Arizona State University, got my degree from the W.P. Carey School of Business. I got my degree in accounting. Um, it's funny because I kind of knew at the time that I didn't want to be an accountant, but I'm like looking at all the majors and I'm like, okay, all of these are kind of lame. Don't really like any of them, but I'll do accounting. At least I have a skill, right? Um, And my dad was a CPA. And so there's some background there um, that I learned from him. And so I went to school, got my degree in accounting, um, got an accounting job uh, with the company. I lasted eight months in that job before (laughs) before I quit. I'm just like, I knew it wasn't for me and it was like a pretty cush job, like it was a nine to five job, but if I strolled in at 9.30, it wasn't a big deal and it was pretty flexible and it paid pretty well. Um, but eight months in, I'm just like, hey, this is not for me, I'm glad I have my background, I'm glad I understand finance, I'm glad I can read a balance sheet and a profit and loss and understand what those numbers mean. But I really knew going into it that I wanted to be an entrepreneur And that this accounting background was really just a business background to be able to to run my own business one day. Um, So not having like a ton of money, um, definitely not enough money to like, you know, buy a house or, you know, fix and flip it and start a whole business. Um, I got my real estate license and um, started uh, representing sellers and buyers in real estate transactions. Um, This is at the time of the market. This is kind of at the time, let's see, two thousand. Maybe seven ish. So the market was still strong, um, but it was about to take a huge dump. Right, is about the time I kind of got involved in real estate. Um, so short sales like were like a little known thing. People didn't know what short sales were because everyone's equity was going like this before the crash, and then it went down. And in Arizona here, where I live, um, we got hit pretty hard. I mean, values dropped fifty to seventy percent. So your average you know, $350,000 house, you know, is now worth like one and a quarter, maybe 150. It was like, we got beat up pretty bad. Um, So I got my, uh, I kind of started learning what short sales were kind of before they're even a thing and um, started working with all the major banks, you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Acovia, PNC, like you name it. I kind of dealt with them all and uh, started just facilitating short sale transactions, which They were a lot more work than like a normal transaction, but I didn't really know any better, kind of being new to the game. Um, But just got the investors that, and most of my clients were investors actually. They were people that were gonna buy the property and rent it out, or people that were gonna fix it and flip it, um, or just you know investors for one reason or another. Um, So I did that for a number of years, and it didn't take long until I realized, man, I'm making 3% on this transaction you know, maybe six, if I'm representing both sides and all my investors, my clients are making tons of money. Like I, they're repeat investors and repeat buyers. So I'd keep in touch with them and see how they did it on these deals. And I'm like, man, they did a lot less work and they're making a whole lot more money. You know, how, uh, how can I get a piece of that? Um, so I bought my first investment property, um, silencing at the auction, um, wasn't a short sale. I couldn't buy my own deal. So I bought one at the auction. And I go there and it just smelled horrible. I go inside and there's a cat on the floor, maggots crawling in it, totally decomposed. Like, and it's just kind of like melting into the carpet. And so that was my first experience, my first flip. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be, this is gonna be fun. <laughs> um, so I did that deal, made a load of money on it, not a lot, but learned a lot of good lessons. Um, and then I did my next deal. And then I started doing a couple at a time. And then, um, then let's see, in like 2013, uh, end of 2013, beginning of 2014, I teamed up with my business partner, Travis, Um, we were both kind of flipping on our own. And we decided, hey, let's kind of join forces, we'll kind of combine some overhead, Uh, we'll spend some money on marketing, and we'll see what we can do. So we started doing some deals and seeing some success, and we worked up to about, Three deals a month, um, about 36 deals in a year, which was a lot. For, for us at the time, that was a that was a big volume. And we were doing everything ourselves. We didn't have uh, really any staff. Um, we were going all the appointments, doing all the paperwork. We like we did everything. And so we were pretty busy, we were both committed, working 50, 60 hours a week, doing uh, what we thought was a high volume at about 36 deals a uh, year, about three a month. And then I remember talking to my brother who was at an event and uh, met someone there who was doing 100 deals a year. And he said, hey, I'm at this event because I'm bored and I wanna learn something new and I wanna start this new business because I'm bored in my flipping business doing 100 deals a year. And so my brother's tell me about this guy and I'm like, okay, that seems crazy for one guy to do 100 deals a year and be bored. Here we have me and Travis working our butts off doing 36 deals, which is 18 per person, if you look at it that way. Um, And I'm like, hey, I got to meet this guy. Can you give me his number? Um, So anyway, long story short, I track him down and uh, get his information and call him. And and then like three days later, they're having this event. And so I go to this event in San Diego, and it happens to be, of course, seven-figure flipping. Um, and so that's how I heard about it and, uh, kind of joined up, you know, kind of signed up right on the spot. I knew I needed help. I knew this person could help me grow and knew it could transform our business. Um, so I kind of like just decided right then and there three days later was our event. I'm in Arizona, so it wasn't too bad to get to San Diego, um, and, uh, spent the three day event there and the full packing live and just completely transformed my business. It just really opened my eyes to what's possible. And I'd say like the biggest transformation was realizing that, hey, there's a lot of people out there that are as talented as me or, or more talented, and I don't have to do it all myself. Um, and that was really like the biggest aha from my first meeting was, hey, I don't have to do everything. I don't have to be the acquisitions manager. I don't have to be the lead manager. I don't have to be the... Um, uh, you know, person doing all the paperwork on, on all the deals, um, and basically kind of split up the roles and just hired some help to do each function of the business. Um, so with that model started hiring people, um, which freed up my time and, uh, was able to to do more deals. And so the, that next year, I think we more than doubled the amount of deals we did. We did about 80 deals, um, and then, you know, more and more. And then just this last year we did, uh, 128 deals for uh for 20 for 2019 so a little over 10 a month which is a huge huge improvement in where we were um you know just a few short years ago and on top of that like my my time freedom has has grown exponentially as well and able to take time off and um i usually try to spend somewhere somewhere else other than arizona because it's 120 degrees <laughs> um so it, it was great that was kind of my journey uh you know, finding the group, joining it, and then uh, kind of the three years I've been with the group, it's just been really transformative on my time freedom, my autonomy, and, um, you know, just the overall productivity and profitability of the business.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I remember that first meeting in October when you guys showed up, and <clears throat> it was like we made a phone call two days, three days before, and now we're here. Uh, What do you guys have for us? We're ready because we need help, right? I can just tell you guys were running around like chickens with your head cut off, just working hard and uh, not necessarily as smart as you could have been, like working as smart as possible. So, and I think that's, I think it's a really good transition into what we're going to talk about today, which is like making, having your money working for you, not, and being smart about what you're doing with your finances. So with an accounting degree, with your background, have you always been, looking at money a certain way or saving money or investing in IRAs and 401ks and things like that? Or has that been a journey for you too?
0: Well, it's definitely been a journey. I mean, everything in life is a journey, right? Um, I do feel blessed that, uh, I did learn about the principles of money at an early age. Um, so my father, who's no longer with us, he, um, he was a CPA and he, uh, was an entrepreneur, um, a commercial real estate investor, ran a mortgage company. Um, a lot of big successes in life, but he was really good and diligent about saving money and not just blowing out the back door. Like he, he could have, when he had really good years and big years, he could have spent it all on fancy stuff and spoiled himself, but he was really pretty disciplined about hey, saving your money and investing for the future, saving your money, investing for the future. Really had that long-term vision in mind. Um, and so I, I was blessed to grow up in a family to where that was kind of like, Pretty commonplace to talk about Um, and I feel like in a lot of families in America maybe all over the world probably it's a little bit taboo to talk about money and personal finance that was not the case at all in our household I mean a lot of our dinner conversations or just conversations at home revolved around business deals and money and you know investing and different things like that so it's pretty unique versus going into a lot of homes where you know hey money is maybe a taboo subject so, I was able to like learn a lot of good lessons as a child that, that I kind of grew with.
1: So, what, what are some of those lessons? Like, I, like maybe we, what we should do is just you share a couple of lessons that you learned and then I'll share some of the things that, because that, as far as my, I remember when I was young, yeah. money was, we didn't have a lot of money. Like money was tight. It, I was, In fact, I just went by, we were in California for the EOS uh, implementation that we just did. And we were in Calabasas, which is right down the street from yeah. Thousand Oaks. I went by my house in Thousand Oaks. I haven't been there since 1988. And I remember it like it was, you know, I was eight years old. I remember it like I, I had just been there and I saw it. They had renovated the whole house, but I got on the phone with my dad. My mom and dad were both driving back from Key West. And I said, Hey, I'm, I think I'm at the house. Do I have the right number, address, but I'm here. This is really cool. It's bringing back a lot of memories. And yeah. they said, you know, I, I asked them a little bit about that house. They said, we bought the house for $165,000. It's, mm-hmm. uh, just to give you guys, it's Thousand Oaks. It's probably like a 1,800 to 2,000 square foot, three. probably a 3-2, if I remember right. And, and, and it was in eighty about 84. Bought it for 165000 And I was like, oh my gosh, that's it's like nothing. They're like, yeah, well, we could barely pay the mortgage payment. It was, it was not something that it was a stretch for us when we bought it. You know, the, obviously the interest rates then were probably in the 18 to 20% interest, sure. but I would started driving up the hill. Cause I remember a kid, a friend of mine who lived up, up the hill that I would, I would r- ride my bike or walk to, or ride my skateboard up there and see him. And I was asking them about who that kid was. If they remember who it was, they said, Oh, that house on the hill that overlooked the Valley. That was like, that, they were rich. Those yeah. people had a ton of money. You could look over the valley. It's like, they, I think their house was like $600,000 then. And wow. I I was thinking to myself, rem, I was just reminded of how we didn't necessarily talk about money when I was younger, like like what you're talking about. I, I didn't have that experience. Uh, I never, but I never felt like we didn't have a lot of money or didn't have things. My parents never made it uh, obvious to me that we were kind of, I think there was some struggles behind the scenes, but we were yeah. always... Typically, you know, we were involved in things. We could do things, but then as I got older and I could start realizing what money could do and, and how much we needed it, I would always ask for stuff and be try get become a little bit like spoiled with the other kids around. That mm-hmm. we were really tight when my dad started his business. It was really yeah. like, and I told the story this year, at flip back and live, but like my mom would so like designer logos on jeans that we would get at thrift shop and stuff like that. So we would kind of fit in with the more popular kids at school and stuff. And that's when I realized that we, we maybe weren't at uh, that kind of, we we're like trying to move up to that middle class. Right. So, right. so for me, uh, I, I'll share some of my kind of ideas about money, but what are some of the yeah. things like lessons that you learned that you feel as you were young? So yeah, one of the,
0: one of the good lessons I learned as I was younger, which is still just as applicable, if not even more, you know, today as I'm older is to always live on less than you earn. Um, Seems pretty straightforward, seems pretty basic, but you'd be surprised how many people in our country get that backwards and they finance their lifestyle on debt and credit cards and loans and all these different things. um, Because they don't have the patience and they want the instant gratification. So kind of like delayed gratification is one of those principles. And basically don't buy it until you can afford it, until you can pay for it. Um, And so live in on less than you earn. But there's always this thing in my house where it's like, hey, if you want something, like you should work to earn it. Like if you don't say I can't afford it, instead ask yourself a more powerful question, how can I afford it? So if there's something we wanted, We wouldn't just go out and buy it um, on a credit card and, you know, go and make payments on it. We'd say, hey, I can't afford that yet, but how can I afford it? And then you make a plan to go achieve that, right? So even as a young child, I remember, hey, live on less than you earn. Um, And so what that kind of forced you to do is if you wanted something you didn't have, you had to figure out how to increase your income, um, which is a lot better solution than taking out debt to buy something.
1: Yeah, I like that. Increase your income, and I think we'll come back to that uh, yeah. for sure because that's that's what I've realized recently is a lot of times it's how can I you know cut off this thing that I really like to do or these expenses to make it look like you're making a lot more money than you are or being able to spend or to save more money that way, and that's mm-hmm. great. And I I I started that way, just yeah. almost being really cheap and thrifty and right. frugal, like whatever word you want to call for cheap. Right. But that was me. It was really a lot of that. And I think, I do think it's absolutely still smart to budget and plan and those kind of things, like you said, but how can we then, and that's what the, what we do. It's all about what we do. How, how do we actually increase the income and start doing yeah, more? So, you absolutely. know, Making Warren, point. Uh, I was going to say, there's a Warren Buffett quote that just like yeah. resonates with me when you said, you know, is live off less than you make, really look about, look at saving money. But it says, uh, don't save what's left after spending, but spend what is left after saving. So he said, do not save what is left after spending, but spend what is left after saving. And that, that's, I mean, that's it. It's let your money go. So anytime I ever got a paycheck, the amount of money that I was going to take out of that paycheck came out first. Mm -hmm. And then whatever's left over is what I had left over to spend. So many people, that's really where you get into the spenders and the savers in life, right? You got the people that are focused on saving and they're like you, they grew up in a family that talked about money that knows what, you know, money is this kind of, uh, it's a, it's a tool, right? It's not something that you're worried about that you're holding on to really tight. It's making sure that we're saving first, then we're spending versus spend as much as I have. And then at the end of the month, hey, what's left over that I can put in my savings account? Because nothing will be left over. It will not be left over, it's just the way it works. Totally.
0: Yeah, yep. I agree. That's a total, uh, kind of the total premise of the book Profit First, you know, is, hey, pay yourself first. Um, and, and we did that growing up. We also, I saved money to, um, you know, to tithe, basically, to give, uh, to give back to church and God and help people who are less fortunate. So I took 10% of my income right off the top for tithing, and then I would kind of set a goal of like, hey, that's, that's the first 10%, then the next 10% or the next percentage is for me. And whether that's 10% or 40% kind of fluctuates with what you think your income might be and kind of what kind of lifestyle you wanna have, what kind of expenses you would, you know, you expect. Um, but I, I, I would say a good goal, it would be to pay yourself 10% as well, set that aside first. And then you still have 80% left, you know, after paying God and paying yourself. Um, you know, to to do whatever you need to do to pay whatever bills you need to pay, and and if someone's really tight on money, you might not get all their bills paid. But I'd rather pay myself first than a creditor who I don't don't even know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, my, my dad always taught me to save ten percent. Just like like for me, yeah, ten percent—that's that's number, mm-hmm. kind of like the minimum. Put it towards IRAs. Uh, so I would fill up my Roth IRA with that. If there was any left over, then it would go somewhere else. So that was kind of like my savings, right? Build my emergency fund, then my IRA, and just put ten. And then ten became twenty, and it was very easy to just kind of like you said, live on yeah. less than you make. And as I started getting more senior in the military, I was you know an O four. Live, uh, Lieutenant commander for those of you who don't know what an 04 is in the Navy, but we then we I was living off of basically two ranks down salary, and yeah. I was eventually saving forty to fifty five percent of my income, and then I had rental income that was coming in, and so then then that's when my mindset shift changed a little bit because I was really kind of tightening this, the belt and just saving trying to save a ton, but my income wasn't changing, uh-huh. and then when I started realizing that I can I was actually I could affect my income. Like I could be the one to do that. That's when things really changed for me and gave me the ability to just make more and save more. So it kind of hit it on both ends. So uh, the saving money and then putting it aside, like taking it out right away. I think that's just like, you have to do that because when it's there, even as a saver, sometimes when it's there, it gets spent or it gets put towards awesome. something that it probably um, is not the best use of it. Mm-hmm. And, the, the other thing that you said about tithing and, and giving and donating money to charity or whatever you guys are doing, if you're not doing that when you don't have any money, you're definitely not doing that when you have a lot of money. So I see a lot of people say, oh yeah, but hey, when I have money, I'm going to give a lot of money. But right now I don't have a lot of money and I'm not going to give a lot. I'm not going to give any because it's all for me. That, that's, a, that's a totally wrong way to think about things in the mindset, but you've really got to make it a point. If that's who you want to be and what you want to do, and that's ingrained in you, like it in you and me is we figure out how to give when we don't have so that we can give more when we have more. And I think that's a really big thing. And uh, hopefully we have time in this series to do something on tithing and giving and, and things like that, because I think that's, that's a whole nother podcast that we can talk about that and, and the power of it too. Of what happens when you do that? Walter Bond said that money is a currency that's meant to flow, right? And that's one of the my favorite quotes from Flipbacking Live. I love that. It's like because I feel it every time that every time that I put it out there, it comes back. And I'm I'm a, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. There's an episode where uh, they, Elaine is talking to Jerry. He's like, I'm like even Steven, and he's like, he takes a $20 bill and it like throws it out the window or something like that. And then he puts on his, his jacket and he looks in the pocket and he goes, Elaine, it's a $20 bill. <laughs> and he's like, and then somebody comes up and is like, it's raining money out there. I just make found 20 bucks on the floor. So awesome. It's uh, obviously the joke compared to tithing and giving, but right. it's every time that, that I donate something or I do something, um, it just comes back to me tenfold. So I agree. Um,
0: i agree. Another lesson um, that I learned, and this one's probably an easy one to guess since my dad has an accounting background and I do too, but um, another lesson was, was, was basically track what you earn. Track what you earn and track what you spend. Um, you know, in, in, in a complex uh, business and corporate structure, you have accountants and team of accountants, you know, putting together a profit and loss statement and a balance sheet, and you pretty much know if you take your business seriously, and if you're public, then you have to, you know. You pretty much know exactly where you're at every day, every moment of the day. You can run a report. You can see, hey, where did I earn money? Here's all line items. Where did I spend money? Here's all line items. And what's left over? Is that a positive or a negative number? You know, and then that flows into the balance sheet, right? Um, but not talking accounting terms, um, my dad taught us at a very young age to, to basically track it, right? And he made it fun. I remember as a kid, we, uh, my whole family, we'd get graph paper and we get colored pencils. And he would help us do like a bar graph and a line graph of our income and our expenses. And then we'd make, that was like the actuals. And we'd make another set of like what our goal would be, right? So those bars would be a lot higher and that line graph would be a lot higher. <laughs> um, but he was teaching us the importance of like tracking it, right? Um, you can't really improve something until you identify what you can improve on. And that's, and that's one way that you can, you can really tell, hey, here is my habits, here's what I'm doing really well at. I'm I'm doing really good saving or or maybe the maybe the reverse. I'm making a ton of money, you know, I made I made multiple six-figure income but I spent just as much or more. That was a fun year, but you know, I spent everything I made plus some, right? And you just don't know that without tracking it. You can kind of get a general feel of that just, you know, just by being aware, but unless you track it and you have a system for tracking what you make and what you spend, um you just don't know on that and i think that is a habit i like i learned that at an early age i tracked my income expenses um even my balance sheet throughout high school throughout college and i still do it today i think that's definitely a skill um and it's a skill that more people i think should have and should take more seriously um with quickbooks online and other tools like that it makes it super easy to import all your bank feeds and you click some buttons and you've got everything in there Um, so it doesn't take a lot of time, but it's a huge game changer on knowing, um, not only your business financials, but your personal financial statement as well. Like where you are at as a person, as Bill Allen, as Tanner Larson, Hey, what did I do this year? And what are my goals? And, and what's that disparity? What's that gap?
1: Yeah. I think that's really powerful because if, if you're, if you do that, and I I didn't do that at an early age and it was only recently the past, probably eight years or so, six, uh, seven to eight years that I've started tracking my net worth. So what I do and I do something that that to me is exactly what you're talking about. It's telling me how did I do this last month, this last quarter, this last year to adjust my net worth, my number? Did it go up? Did it go down? Why? And what it, so, um, so, what I do is I have this net worth sheet that I, when I was really trying to get off the ground and get up and running, yeah. I would track every month. So, every month, and it's basically just like you said, it's, it's, my, it's my balance sheet, right? It's my personal balance sheet yeah. that shows me, did I increase my net worth or decrease my net worth this, this month? And then over on the side, it said why. So, it had all my assets in one column. It's just a simple spreadsheet, assets, liabilities, and it's does the math at the bottom. And then I got a second page of that spreadsheet that has history. So yeah. I just take a screenshot, put it there, just so put the numbers in. And then I can see at that time, it was stock portfolio, real estate portfolio, retirement accounts. Yeah. And then it showed yeah. me the number. So I could see what my percentages were, it showed me my um, like a, kind of my risk bucket, it shows me all yeah. that different stuff. And it's basically just pulls that feed from there. And then I could see every month and then it had a notes column. So which was basically me describing what I did that month whether I bought a um, I bought a rental property I sold a rental property, I flipped a house I I put I put my money into my IRA or 401k something like that it also has all of my bank accounts what's the cash balance all that stuff so then so I did that for a couple of years and like you you said something which is like what you focus on changes, right? When you watch it, it's going to, you're going to be focused on it. It's going to change. And it started seeing it go up. So it's going up a little bit. And this is when I was a hundred percent stocks. It was, I had like a couple rental properties and I hadn't even flipped a house yet. And I'm seeing it go up nice and slow, pretty slow, pretty slow, pretty slow. And then I started getting involved in real estate. And then it started, I was flipping houses. It started going up, went up $45,000 and then it went go up another $40,000. And then because I didn't have much of a net worth to speak of at that time. You know, right. maybe, I don't know, maybe hundred thousand dollars, 150 grand. And then I see it going up and up and up. And now I can see it change by like 30%. It's going up 30% with one transaction. That's yeah. when the light bulb goes off and it's not, it doesn't become $40,000 anymore. It becomes a huge spike in your net worth mm-hmm. and a yeah. change in your life and financial future. And oh. so then I saw that and then i kept tracking it for a while. And now I track, then it was quarterly. So now I track it quarterly, but what I can see is I can go back now and I can look six, seven years ago and go, "Wow, that's a huge change in a short amount of time, yeah. which means I was in a race car to get there like yeah. you're on a you're on a like a bicycle out there in the stock market I am yeah. in a uh, I'm in a rocket ship yeah yeah and so and it's really great to see now, I can also see exactly what I did to do that. And I think that's really important because it gives you this, it gives you this like clarity in what you're doing. It's working or it's not working. Like what happened that I had to take a step back and it lets you analyze it. Like you said, your goals mm-hmm. and you got that new bar graph. That's my goals of how much money I want to make. Well, now you can have some personal net worth goals and things like that. Not just, Hey, my business did 200 transactions this year. We did 3 million but what did that do for me personally how much money are we making what's the net all that stuff like you could spend 3.2 million to make 3 million and that number is going to change, especially when the tax man comes around, right? And all this other stuff. So it shows me, you know, what's working and what's not working and what are the investments that I'm making that are, that are doing a good job and what's kind of drawing me back down to not make those mistakes. So I love that. You know, I never was tracking all that stuff when I was younger, but I'm definitely tracking it now. And once I started tracking it, it's because I was focused on, I wanted that, I wanted something to change in my life. And that was it. You want to be financially free. You've got to actually do something to make it happen.
0: Uh, one, more, one more quick thing I'm tracking. Um, you talked uh, earlier about, Hey, like what are we doing uh, to kind of help our kids learn some of these good financial habits? And, and I, I guess I'll share this quick story about how I taught my eight year old son to kind of start tracking his personal finances almost by mistake. Um, we have like, we have some cash in our safe, just at home, um, just for like convenience, like little stuff that you don't really want to get checks out for credit cards don't make sense. Um, buying the kids lunches or, you know, paying the landscaper or just whatever. Right. And it's just in the safe. Um, and just like part of who I am, like I want to track it, right? Like if that big stack of cash is going down to zero, like I want to know what I spent it on. And so I have this little sheet in there and it has a, uh, it was just the Excel spreadsheet I built a long time ago. It just has date, uh, like uh, memo, like what it is and amounts increase, decrease and then the total. So we'd have the stack of cash in an envelope in the safe just to pay for random stuff, and I track it. Every time I pull money out of the envelope, I'll write down on there, "Hey, landscaping, forty bucks. Here's the new balance. Um, Pizza, kids' lunches, six bucks. Here's a new balance." And for me, it was just a habit. Um, And now my wife does that too because it's otherwise when we reconcile it, it's not going to make sense. (laughs) Um, But my eight-year-old son was looking at that and. Thought that was pretty cool. He was asking what I was doing. So I kind of explained, well, hey, here's my money. And when I pay uh, stuff, I'll write it down here. If I have any cash, I don't want my wallet. I'll throw it in here and I'll put an addition. And he's like, hey, can you print me out a couple of those? So I printed him out some of these sheets, which is just super simple. You know, anyone can make it in Excel in two minutes. Um, And I didn't think much of it until like two months later. um, I see him upstairs in his room and he's writing stuff down. I'm like, hey, what are you working on? Well, he pulls out these sheets that I handed him two months ago, and he's got all of his transactions written out as an eight-year-old. Hey, I made this tour money. He put it in. He bought something. He took it out. Um, and now he's doing it. He's tracking his own, uh, own kind of cash stack just because he saw me do it. I, I didn't even intend for it to be a lesson, uh, but it just kind of turned out that, um, you know, by example, he started doing that. So now he's really kind of got um, kind of excited about making money. He has his own bank account. Uh, he'll invest in some of our deals. He just invested $200 in and, and one of our flips. Um, he made sure to do his due diligence, and he kind of researched out the pictures of all the uh, flips we are going on. He's like, okay, I'm going to put my money on that deal. Um, so it's actively invested, and we signed a contract. He knows the rate of return he's going to get, and uh, when that cash is back out, I'm, I'm sure he'll probably do it again. Um, so it's just kind of fun to teach your kids that. And that was a, almost a lesson by mistake. Um, and they, they really do watch what you do and they really do pick up your habits. In that case, as a good habit. I'm sure I've taught him plenty of bad habits too. Um, but at least he's picking up some good ones along the way as well.
1: Yeah, well, you know that our kids are watching us for sure. There's no doubt about it. So sure. everything that you're doing, whether it's spending money and not worrying about it, using the credit card nonstop, playing on our phones, our computers, not yep. paying attention, all that stuff they're watching. They know, yep. my, my, I mean, my, I'm pretty sure my two-year-old can pick up my cell phone right now, turn it on, turn on YouTube, watch a TV show and stuff like that because he's watching me. Totally. He can't even say what he wants to do, but he can do it. So yep. um, th- that's it. That's These are the success habits that are going to go down generations, right? Mm-hmm. So balancing your uh, cash account in your safe or okay. your piggy bank, whichever it may be. So. Totally. What uh? What other things? So let's talk about a little bit about uh, some bigger things. So now we've got this these kind of habits, these early habits, uh-huh. and what are some things as you've evolved in your finances? Some some things that that you do. Maybe it's retirement accounts. Maybe it's some more advanced strategies and things to really kind of blow up. Because we we've got some of the folks that are listening who are, I'll, I'll you know. I don't have the stats in front of me, but the majority of Americans are in debt. Their net worth is below zero, right? They don't have a lot of money in their bank accounts. So some of these things like putting the money aside, saving 10%, you know, save before you spend, all of those things, those are good basics to have. Yeah. And now as we get going, we got to also have a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners and, and bigger time flippers that are listening. So what can we do to become more financially free now that we have a vehicle that's, that's happening here and kicking out cash?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say the first thing I would do if you're not already in this spot is, is to get debt free. Um, when you talk about like financial freedom, it really means like a couple of things, right? Like living on less than you earn. Um, a lot of people describe it as like having enough passive income to cover your expenses. Um, but if you have like a huge mountain of debt, that's going to be harder to accomplish. Um, one kind of discipline I've always held is like to never have credit card debt. Um, you know, never have a revolving line of credit. So, I use a credit card, but I I pay it off in full every month. So, that's not counting against me at 18 or 27 or whatever the percent APR is. Um, You know, never have credit card debt. Um, You know, if you have automobile loans, try to pay those off. You know, mortgage, you know, it's a little bit different. You know, there's different strategies and it's a bigger dollar amount. Um, You know, I think that's probably fine to have a mortgage on your house, of course. And it's not practical to to, to buy a tiny house and live mortgage free. Right. Um, at least not with as many kids as I have. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say, I would say get out of debt and stay out of debt, like keep that discipline and then like kind of once you kind of have a handle on your expenses and you're, you're relatively debt free, like continue to work on growing your income. And now once you're at that point, you can look at invest in it in other things. Um, so I would say like a, I'm always looking for a way to produce more income, like that will solve a lot of problems, you know, that will solve a lot of bad habits and mistakes if you can produce more income, right? So in my business, I'm always looking Hey, how can we be more efficient? How can we be more productive? Um, How can we make more money? Um, Once you kind of have some surplus cash, you're like, wow, my business is going well, I got my debt paid off, and my savings continues to go up and up and up and up, what should I do with this? Um, Well, that's when you should really should invest. And as an entrepreneur, like the first choice and, and where I'm pretty heavily weighted is reinvesting back into my company. Um, one, because I'm a control freak and I know I, can, um, I know I can control my own business. And I know, and two, I'm, I'm confident I can generate a 30, 40 plus percent return on my equity, right? Um, and so I always reinvest in myself, I'm always betting on myself, I'm always reinvesting in my company. I'm always investing in education. Really, I'm like a lifelong learner. Um, Huge on personal development, like you know, since forever. And I believe in investing in education programs and training tools to like basically invest in yourself. Sorry, it's part of your question too. Like where, what I do with that money, and where I invest it, and how. Well, I grow but
1: it? before we move on, I just there's a couple of things you said. So there's I, I, the way I look at debt is that there's kind of good debt and bad debt, right? Absolutely. So a lot of this is personal debt that Tanner's talking about. So obviously, you might have some uh, loans on, like private money loans on your flips, uh, your rental properties, things like that, that are producing, those are assets producing income. And then you've got this horrible debt that's really just a liability, like these huge credit card bills or student loans that are really high interest and things like that. And then obviously the mortgage, like for me, I use a a home equity line of credit on my house and I'll kind of take it out, put it back in, do all that stuff as you kind of have some cash that builds up. I actually, I do have a car loan right now, but it it was a great tax play for us for a sure. vehicle. And it was a 0.9% interest loan. No so, yeah. but, but I had the cash to buy the car. Yes. So, that's the difference. That's the big yeah. difference, guys, is if I didn't have the cash to buy the car, I likely wouldn't have bought the car because I knew the second I drove it off the lot, the value is going to go way down. And yeah. it did hit my, it did hit me on um, my net worth sheet. It's there because I put the, I put the current v- value that I could sell the vehicle for, not what I paid for it. So yeah. I immediately lost like twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 of net worth by doing that. But mm-hmm. I also saved, uh, like mid five figure, like $50,000 on my taxes for doing it. So it was calculated a decision for me. Right. So think about that when you guys go, there's, and you mentioned you're a control freak for your business. I I don't, I don't remember who said the quote, but somebody said something like, um, you got to really think about your shareholders. Like all my decisions are made for my shareholders, but I'm the number one shareholder. (laughs) So like we we are focused on taking, you always take care of the shareholders of the business and being kind of selfish and you you know how well and how how well your business is operating and if i had the opportunity to invest in a company that i have no control over and a company that i do have control over then i'm going to invest in myself and i know how well that's going to do and that's that's why my net worth changed so much is because i put i pumped money back into my business to grow my business and start being able to go from one deal to 70 deals to 150 deals to, to almost 200 deals and that was off the backs of about 2 years of me putting money back in the company. You have oh, to, you start, yeah, I agree. there's a lot of people that'll pull $10,000 a month out of their, their company. And they say, why can't I grow? I want to scale. I want to build something, but I don't have any money in the account. Well, you take $10,000 a month out of your business every month, whether yeah. you made it or not. Like, what do you, do you need $10,000 a month? It's just like we talked <laughs> about the beginning. Can you live sure. off of less than you make? So, okay. And then, so we've got We've got these kind of concepts of paying down debt, probably building an emergency fund, some of the basics of that stuff. And I I love the fact that I have the ability in my company, once a month I teach a financial uh, success presentation to my staff, whoever wants to stay. So they stay on after our our monthly kind of town hall meeting. And then anybody that wants to stay, they stay. And we just talk about stuff like investing and rental properties and taxes and insurance and whatever they want to talk about personal finances. And then I'll also get on the call with them one-on-one, I'm not a financial planner, not a CPA or anything like that, but I do know what I do and I want to kind of develop that. And What I find is a lot of people in my company are spenders or they're savers, but they're married to a spender. I find (laughs) a lot of times that's usually how it goes. And, um, that, that, uh, I don't know if Lucy's here or not, but that, that's kind of the world I'm in is I grew up in, in here in the U S where my dad taught me how to save money and save money and save money. Even when we didn't really have any. And then in England, it was, uh, we're going to work until we die. Like we don't need retirement accounts. We don't even know what that is. We don't make a big return. We just, we just spend our money. And at the end of the week, if there's none left from what I made, then I just don't go out or don't do anything. And that's kind of the mindset in not all, but that's the mindset we'll kind of in her village and how she was uh, raised. And so I'm trying to get her out of that kind of mindset and concept and a little bit more uh, challenging there. So, so there's some other options as business owners, right? We got kind of some savings. I like the, I like the idea of investing back into business. I mean, I really think that's where most people are.
0: That's my number one investment for sure. And I'll probably continue to stay heavy there. Um, But I don't, I don't put all my eggs back in that basket. I mean, I, I, I don't think my business is going to fail, but potentially it could. Right. And if I reinvested a hundred percent of, you know, you know, my income, my profits, and then that fell then then that would, you know, that'd be catastrophic. So I do invest heavily in my business cause I, I bet on myself and I, I believe in myself and I believe we're going to win and continue to grow. Um, but I do invest in other stuff too. I mean, I do invest in uh, private loans for other investors, you know, I'll, I'll fund deals for people on a short term basis. Um, I do invest in the stock market with a kind of an advanced strategy of, um, I don't typically buy the stocks outright, but I'll, um, I'll sell puts and calls and and basically, uh, keep that premium, like day traders, they'll buy puts and calls so they can see this big growth. We'll all sell them and basically, you know, take the day traders money, um, and then let the, and then let the, uh, let them expire. So that's one thing I invest in, in the stock market. And typically I'm doing that inside of my retirement fund. Um, and so I'll, uh, you know, my business will spit off cash. Um, some of that cash goes into my, my self-directed, uh, 401k plan. And then within that plan, I'll invest, you know, in stocks and do options. Um, but even within that plan, cause it's self-directed, I'll invest in real estate and I'll buy rental properties, um, and own the deed to those and hold those. Um, so, I mean, I'm a big real estate guy. So, I mean, that's where a majority of my investments are going to be either in hard money loans you know, owning the property as a rental, flipping or wholesaling the property in my main business. um, And then, you know, I'll do some stocks and option trading as well.
1: Yeah, I think, I think the other thing, the other kind of gotcha that we get a lot of times as real estate investors is we're on this kind of cash roller coaster, right? You mentioned the book Profit First. I think yep. it's a fantastic one for setting money aside for taxes, setting money aside for owner, it's like the amount of money that the owner is going to make, setting aside profit, setting aside some things before you pay money out of, for the operating costs of the business. And it's all set up to design a couple different accounts, make sure that the business is profitable and that you know when you're having issues. So oh. it's not like the money goes up and down. But as, as flippers, what I find as I was growing my business is the company like never had any money. It was just, there wasn't money because what was happening and it's, it makes sense when you break it all down, but what's happening is I was going from two deals to four deals a month, then to six deals, then to 10. And as I was growing and I'm, we're doing more flips, then I'm needing more cash to fund the renovations or the 10% deposits or the overhead and the payroll and all that stuff. And so as we're growing, we're kind of growing the same way with the amount of money that we're making. And really knowing your, your profit and loss statement and understanding that I think is the, is the answer to it. But then also knowing how much equity is in your business. Because just because you're not pulling it out doesn't mean that now that I own four flips instead of two, then the ARVs, now I have a four houses instead of those two houses. I made, maybe I made $80,000 from those two flips the month before, but now I spread it out for 20,000 a house on these, but now I have another $40,000 of profit in the future unrealized Uh, profits, right? That is coming down the pipe that if I don't look at the net worth of the business, like the net worth that I do on my sheet, uh-huh. and it can get really frustrating and feel like you don't have any money or you're, you're not making any money, even though you made $40,000 on the flip, you don't know where it went. Well, yeah. it's, in, it's reinvested in your business. You are, you're reinvesting in your business without even realizing it. Yeah. And what I like about that private first model is we pull that prop, a percentage of that profit out, Mm-hmm. And then the rest stays in the account that we can use for the business, but you can't go tap into that. It's in an account. That's not easy to get to. It's there it shouldn't be something where you're just like, Oh, I'm going to transfer over $20,000 to get this deal done. No, that money's in there. It's, it's almost like it doesn't exist. Yeah. And then when the tax bill comes, I remember a couple of years ago, I had a six figure tax bill hit me and yeah, I had awesome. reinvested all my money into the business. And I, what I didn't realize is I'm kind of a new business owner, right? This is my year two of my business. and I'm just assuming that the business is going to pay for this, right? Not me. And, but it's, it's, it all flows to my account. It's all me. And now I have to write a check that size because my business doesn't have any money. So, because I didn't pay myself at the end of the year, like I should have. Yeah, enough. But well, I, fortunately I had it, but it's, it's debt. It's, it's owed from the business, right? So every year for me, we're setting now setting that aside in the tax account. So when the bill comes, the business can pay me to pay the account. Like it, I am totally separate from the business and not totally. the
0: same entity. I agree. That's a really good book. I mean, especially for most people who don't have a degree in accounting, it's a way to break it down easily to where, hey, the accounts on the profit and the loss and the balance sheet are kind of broken up into separate bank accounts. It makes that much more visually uh, understandable to you know, the average business owner um, or entrepreneur who doesn't have, you know, years of accounting background. I would, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the uh, owner's equity account because I think that is probably the biggest number that's overlooked. I mean, everyone looks at their income and expenses to get to their net income. And yeah, a lot of times you're like, hey, I made this much money. Where is it all at? Well, you should be tracking your owner's equity account, which, which I do. And when I take draws out from my company, it lowers that owner's equity account. So I know, hey, now there's less equity in the business, but I have it in my personal account until I go spend it. Um, and that's a really good benchmark to see how is your company doing overall and how are you managing your cash? Is your owner's equity account constantly going up, 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 up? Or do you have a couple of bad deals in there that it takes it down? Or, you know, hey, you weren't as profitable as you thought, but your company overhead, um, you know, was more expensive than you thought. And so that number's going down. Um, Really, it's, it's the ultimate like, plug number to know how well is your business doing, right? Can it pay all of its bills and pay you, and is the business still growing on top of that? That's a really overlooked number. I think it, it could it'd be helpful for every entrepreneur to track that number a lot more carefully.
1: Yeah. And I know a lot of our mastermind members, this is kind of where they're struggling right now. They're really good in generating leads or they're really good at sales and they're not necessarily as good in the finance portion of their business. And they're starting to feel that cash roller coaster, the real estate roller coaster, I'll call it. And you're you're like you'll have a million dollars in your bank account, then you'll have none. And then it goes ups and up and down. The the biggest thing that I think is helping a lot of them is that hundred percent financing that we rolled out with Lending Home. Holy. So, that now you're getting 100% financing on the purchase and 100% of the rehab costs. So, instead of put, having to come up with that 10% of the purchase price like we had to before, now being in seven-figure flipping and getting that, those, that kind of terms is uh, just a game changer for a lot of us, me, me included. So, now, yeah. now I can keep that cushion. I can use that for, um, you know, because I, I like to keep a couple months of operating expenses in the account and make sure that's it's there all the time. I feel comfortable. I was at a point where I was really crunched. I had some loans to the company for a while uh, before they could pay me back. And we were just starting to grow and expanding and things like that. And that's part of running a business. I mean, the, is, yeah. the, the muffin shop down the street from you, the bakery, they got the same problems, right? <laughs> but they might not be throwing as much cash around as we are. And right. when we're borrowing other people's money and we're leveraging like private money loans and hard money loans and stuff like that, you really owe a debt to those people. Like it's, it's on you as the business owner to make sure that you understand this and you're being professional about it. And that's the biggest thing. So that's why it's so important to me is I have a lot of friends and family money that we use. I have a lot of my money that goes through. Obviously I'm responsible for a lot of the debt that's on the books, whether it's personal guarantees or anything else. So You've got to make sure that you understand that stuff and don't overlook it. So, the idea of this podcast is not to scare anybody or anything like that. It's to give you the the foundation and the structure and some of the gotchas and some of the things that even even us, even the people who are doing a lot, these high level investors, we struggle with that too. I mean, I've i just just now we had to move fifty thousand, we had to move hundred thousand dollars over from our um, business line of credit over to the bank account to make payroll this week because we have a deal that got pushed that was supposed to come in. That was all cash. that All of our cash is tied up in a house and it got pushed and we, we got to make payroll as either our business line of credit writing that check or me personally writing that check. And yeah. I'm trying personally not to write checks for the company anymore.
0: <laughs> Good. Yeah, it's tricky when there's a lot of moving parts to, to a business. You, you really got to kind of keep that bird's eye view of your financial data and financial information. One other thing I'll, I'll add, uh, which we haven't talked on as far as managing your cash flow on kind of that cash roller coaster, you talked about the 100% financing, which is huge. Um, one other thing that we do, because we don't do that 100% financing program, we, we typically do like 90% financing, so we'll put down 10, plus we'll pay for the rehab. It's just simpler and um, is a lot less like friction for our business. But the only reason why I'm willing to do that is because I've raised... Multiple seven figures of gap funding. So I have investors that, uh, when the property sells, they don't get paid back. It just gets reinvested and kind of stays in our bank account. So they all have promissory notes. Um, they're on the books. I keep track of it. I know how much I owe to what person and at what time we make monthly payments on those. Um, but we have you know multiple seven figures of gap funding that basically covers that ten percent plus the rehab, you know, plus whatever else we have going on in the business and. And that is a huge uh, kind of relief in our business to kind of even out the cash roller coaster. Um, but it takes some time to kind of develop those contacts and, and have enough wins with that person so that they trust you that they know they're going to get their money back, even when it's not collateralized with a certain, you know, deed of trust on a, on a per property basis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, those that private funding was my primary means of funding. I never did a hard money loan until lending home came in the picture about a year and a half ago for us. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, everybody's a little bit different. I love the, I, I mean, I am averaging somewhere around like eight, eight and a half percent with them, 9%. So it's really yeah, nice great. to see even that with hard money. That's about where I was with the promissory note. And now I'm we're in and out. So I know everybody's a little bit different. Well, obviously we teach a ton of, uh, Different skills right. and aspects yeah. of private money and lending and things like that, and that, as well as uh, you know using hard money. I'm not against using hard money, obviously, but I agree when you can use a 90% loan and then that 10, and you don't have to deal with the draws and all of that stuff because a lot of times you're paying for that stuff up front anyway on the rehab and then getting it back. So yeah. um, it was definitely uh, a game changer for us. Even a lot of times, what we do is we use the 100% purchase. And then we'll finance the rehab ourselves, so yeah. we don't come out of pocket right away. We're typically doing that anyway. So, uh, lots of different things that you can do. Obviously, the, I think the moral of the story here is to to understand it. Like you, this is something that you you owe a debt to yourself to figure out what this is and how this works. And if, if you're not the best at it, find somebody who can help you, who can guide you, who can mentor you through that. And obviously we have a lot of people inside of our mastermind group that are great with finances on the cruise. This is a big thing that we're going to be talking about on the cruise here in February, because I think this is one of the things that a lot of our members are struggling with the most because they're not accountants. They're not, they haven't been raised as, you know, financiers or whatever they're doing in their life. Right. So they weren't taught these principles at early age. They know how to sell. They, they just want to move on to the next one. Like I'm going to make a sale, move on to the next sale, next sale. Like, yeah, the money's there somewhere, isn't it? I mean, I've been selling like crazy we're making a tons of money. It's there. I'm sure it's there. Where is it? I don't know. It's gone. Because they're not tracking how much money they're spending. And this is the easiest way for a company to kind of uh, get into uh, hot water and get not, not even realizing that they're overspending. Totally.
0: And one thing I'll say, if, if tracking this stuff is not your strong suit, like definitely get someone who can do it for you, right? Like you can outsource the accounting. You don't have to, you know, go through four years of college and get a degree to, to do the accounting for your business. You can just pay someone and they'll do your books for you. You can definitely outsource the actual act of keeping track of it, right? What you can't outsource is the responsibility. You can't abdicate your responsibility to know what those numbers mean. I guarantee you, your accountant, your bookkeeper, your whoever does not care about the profitability and your cash management of your business as much as you do. And they probably care about it less than you may even think, right? Like no one cares about your money as much as you do. So definitely like, if you don't understand it, like learn it because it's an important skill. Um, Outsource it so you don't have to spend all your time doing it. You can go sell and continue to grow the business, but definitely like put some time into learning it and do a course on uh, profit and loss statement and balance sheet. Just get the basics and then be responsible and check up on him. And if you don't understand something, like ask your bookkeeper about it and just develop that knowledge, develop that skill over time. And I, I'd be willing to, if, if anyone had questions, I'd be willing to help them out. You guys can reach out to me too. And I'd be happy to spend some time going over, you know, whatever you had questions on too.
1: So I'm so glad that you said that because I thought you were gonna say outsource it all. You don't have to do it. And then you were like, but you can't, <laughs> you're exactly right. That is the number one thing. Like you cannot let somebody else be responsible for that as the business owner that they can do. They can do all the tasks, everything like that, but you better understand it, get the report and make sure that like, your, your fiduciary duty to your business is that it, yeah. that's what it's all about. Cause that's what we're here for. Right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's the people, it's the leads, it's the marketing, it's the sales, it's all of that stuff. But at the end, you don't want to be $500,000 in debt. No. The next thing you know, because you owe a bunch of people money. And your company didn't make what you thought it was making because the gross number looked really good, but you weren't tracking the bottom line.
0: Yeah.
1: And I've, I've seen it happen and it's going to, it will happen again. It'll happen again. So, um, Yeah, it's it's definitely a big responsibility to understand that, and that's where these kind of like monthly reconciles with your bookkeepers can help. Uh, And just have them ask them, say, "Hey, help me with this," or somebody else who's high level who understands what's going on. Obviously, if it's I'll say this:
0: we we actually don't even outsource it in our company, right? Like that's so important to me; I hold it so close to my chest, and it's so important to me. We don't outsource it. Our my integrator, um, he's a CPA, and he was from one of the big four accounting firms. Um, and we, before we recruit him over, I mean, he was working at this accounting firm and has that background. So it's so important to me. I don't even outsource it. I think it is a, that's a good option for a lot of people. Um, and it just happens to be that our integrator, our COO has that background and I, and I do too. He's a lot better than I am at it. Um, and, uh, he tracks it all. And then we have uh, regular meetings on that. Right. So, um, we have someone that kind of helps with the bookkeeping and entering all the stuff. He does all the high level financial reporting. And then you know and then we have meetings on it so that I know where a business is doing. And it's so valuable to have numbers you can trust. I remember so often when I was in charge of the bookkeeping and the selling, both, <laughs> pulling up a, pulling up the QuickBooks and looking at it and be like, okay, here's our numbers, but can I trust these? Are these really accurate? Oh shoot, I haven't reconciled this in two months. I don't even know if I can rely on these numbers. It is such a game changer having numbers that you know you can rely on that are accurate. And then having that confidence to be like, hey, this is what the numbers are telling me. They don't lie. And I know the numbers are right because someone's been paying attention to it. And then being able to take that information to make decisions for your business. You just, it's impossible to make good decisions without knowing that information, I I feel.
1: Yep, I totally agree. Really important. Uh, You don't have to know it as well as Tanner does, as well as Taylor does, as well as any of us do. But you just high level stuff you got to understand that and there's probably three or four numbers that you could look at and know that it, that it's right so um okay that was some good stuff i think i think everybody can pull something from here, whether it's a high level investor who's flipping a lot of houses or trying to grow and scale, which is obviously the folks in the altitude group that we, um, that we run, those people are doing just that they're doing, you know, 10, 20 deals a year, trying to do more. They've hit that ceiling. They're at a point where they're just frustrated, just like you and I were when we were kind of, And I wasn't even there. I was doing one going, I I, I can't even do one. I can't do one. I got this full-time job. And now I have, I just added a second full-time job flipping one house. How is anybody doing more than this? I just wanted to do 12. And then you know it's.
0: I remember that that was your goal. One a month, yeah.
1: Yeah, twelve was my goal when I came in. that was it, and we blew through, blew through that, and through the next one, and through the next one, and now it's just kind of taken off. And same thing with you guys doing thirty six, trying to do more, and then and then growing. So that's really that. And then even if you're down, like one of the runway members uh, earlier on in the program, trying to just get off the ground, trying to get that first deal or that second deal, or get some consistency. And then even those people that just are in debt and are listening to this and are like, man, I'd really love to get into real estate. How do I do that? Hopefully you get some lessons, just some life lessons from this. And then for those of us that have kids, I think this is some awesome stuff. My oldest kid is, my oldest son is five. So I want to figure out how to get him. He thinks about money a certain way and get him, start uh, thinking about it, doing those things and getting into those, those good habits and be open about it. I think the biggest thing for me that's changed is I have no problem talking about I'm actually uncomfortably okay with talking about money with other people. And I just, I think it's a normal thing. I don't see why it should be an issue. Um, and something that we can't talk about at the dinner table for sure at home. Totally. And uh, and hopefully not uh, when I go to parties, I don't like really upset everybody. And but <laughs> I'm always interested to hear about this. It's I, For some reason, money's always been a thing for me. And there, there was a, a coach that I had who told me, it, you don't love money. It's not about money. It's not about having more money, but money to you is the scoreboard of life. Mm-hmm. And you're playing a game against yourself. You're not even playing a game against everybody else. You're yeah. just kind of playing a game and it's just the currency of the game. Yeah. So, and I think he's right. Like he nailed it. I said, you know what, you're right. Because my wife always says, all you care about is money. It's money. And I said, no, it's not about money. It really isn't. I don't care about the money. And it's something else. There's something there. It's just, that's, it's just kind of fun. It's a, it's almost like a game. And so, uh, interesting just the way we all think and project money for ourselves. So, um, all right, before we go, Tanner, just to make sure that, uh, Becca is happy. (laughs) <laughs> what is like the most fun thing that you've done this past year with like your family or anything? Like, what is this business allow you to do? Because I think what that's going to do is we're going to bookend this with fun in the beginning. We can that's do fun, fun in the end. And in the middle, it's going to be like the financial stuff that people are gonna be like, Ooh, I'm going to turn that down a little bit. So yeah. what you've got to have done something really awesome because I've got a really funny story. If you don't tell a really good story or something that you've done, that's awesome.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. So one of my goals a couple of years ago was I mentioned I am in like the Phoenix, Arizona area. It gets very hot in June and July. Our kids are out of school in June, July. It's like miserably hot. You know, it's consistently over 110 degrees, sometimes gets 115, 118, just kind of miserable. I don't know why anyone lives here, uh, <laughs> at least in the summertime. <laughs> right now it's 65 degrees and sunny and it's beautiful and I'm not covered in four feet of snow and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. It's pretty nice here. Um, but I had this goal to take, uh, like a whole month off of work, which I had never done before. Um, not before joining, you know, the seven figure group. And, um, this last year I I did it the previous year, but then I did it even a lot better this year, was even more unplugged, we actually took six weeks off. So from, uh, let's see, like the middle of June until the beginning of August, Um, wasn't home at all one, one day of that. And what we did is we went up to, uh, California and we went up the coast and we went up to, uh, Pismo beach and we drove on the beach. You can actually drive your car on the sand. Like the waves are crashing and you're like, we've got this van full of kids and they're all like out of the sunroof and the windows and they're like, we're driving right right on the ocean. So that was pretty cool. Um, and, uh, kind of went to San Luis Obispo and kind of the whole central coast, uh, area. And then we drove down south to San Clemente and stayed there, uh, for a month after, uh, after those, you know, week and a half, two weeks in, in central coast. And, uh, my wife is from California. So we got to spend time with, uh, her family and her parents and, and, you know, my kids were able to spend time with their grandkids. Um, uh, but we rented a beach house right on San Clemente and we were there the entire month of July. Um, and so that was, uh, that was a ton of fun and, uh, recruited uh, Kale who also lives in San Clemente and we TP Justin's house. There's a Costco nearby and we were shopping and I was like, Hey, toilet paper's on sale. So I got like two huge cases of it. It It's like 96 rolls or something. And in broad daylight, when I knew Justin was out of town, uh, me and Kale and all of our kids uh, TP their house and uh, just had a good time, just had a good time doing it. So that was, uh, that was something that was definitely kind of fun and definitely kind of memorable. I don't know. The last time I TP someone's house was probably 20 years ago. Maybe, hopefully, hopefully longer than that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was 20 TPNS. Let
0: me think, hopefully longer ago than that, but that was definitely fun to spend the time at the beach with my family and the cooler weather and, uh, you know, TP someone's house in broad daylight. It was definitely a good time.
1: That's awesome. Well, I'll tell you, that's funny because that's the story that I was going to tell. So even an accountant, a CPA can cut loose every now and then and have some fun. And yeah, regardless of what Becca or anybody else says about Tanner, every time that we're together, you're making me laugh. You're super, incredibly funny, just an awesome guy to be around. Um, so is your cousin, obviously, and uh, Ann Taylor, you guys are just an awesome uh, group of guys doing some incredible things. I mean, the, your business is something that that I think is just amazing to what you guys have put together and the profitability of it is really shocking. So um, these, you guys are doing some incredible things and I'm thankful for, you know, every conversation that we've had and you teaching me a lot of the things that I'm doing and some of the lessons and uh, speaking at the events and stuff like that. So i really, you know, thankful to know you and have gotten to know you guys so well and some of the things that we've done together and just, Obviously, I'm I'm a better financial person because of our conversations and the connections that you've made yeah. for me. Uh, you know, it's anytime I need something that's financial related, it's I'm coming to you for some some tricks and some high level. So like we we didn't dig into the high level stuff that that Tanner's doing and some of the things that that he knows about. It's really amazing to. Um, whenever I have a problem, like, Hey, I can't do this uh, solo 401k anymore. I need a, a safe Harbor 401k. Oh yeah. I know a guy that can do that for you. No problem. So me, yeah. <laughs> it's usually a relative by the way. So, yeah.
0: all right. Well, <laughs> I was someone, yeah.
1: <laughs> hey Tanner, thanks for spending time with us. I thought it was really great. I, I learned a few things here and I really love it. Uh, I love talking about money. I could, we could stay on for another couple of hours talking really about good. this.
0: Yeah. I got a lot more material. So
1: All right. Maybe we'll save it for, uh, for the cruise for full packing live for some other things. Like I really think that this is something that a a lot of people need, especially in our, our community, the investors for, um, you know, business finances is really this thing that, um, a lot of people seem to struggle with where we, sometimes we take it for granted that we understand it so well. And it's so easy for us Mm -hmm. that, um, I think we, sometimes we have to just take it down to the, you know, uh, take it down a couple levels and explain it. So uh, wow. thanks a lot for spending time with me and I will hopefully see you soon.
0: Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a ton of fun. Appreciate
1: it. All right, guys, thanks for staying with us. If you liked what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, you can go to sevenfigureflipping.com and see all the podcasts and the videos. And then we also have a YouTube channel now, Seven Figure Flipping YouTube channel. You can see how, fun, how much fun we had on this podcast live on there and our, our smiling faces and the beautiful like waterfall in the background of Tanner's office. So uh, right. there's a little teaser. If you didn't watch it on YouTube, you have to listen to it again. All right, guys. Uh, Tanner, thanks for spending time with me. I'll see you guys later. Yep. I appreciate it. Bye. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the 7 Figure Flipping Podcast with Bill Ellen. If you want to grow and scale your house flipping or wholesaling business, check out more insider tips and strategies from the nation's most successful real estate investors at 7figureflipping.com.